This is The Guardian. Just a warning before we start, this episode contains descriptions of violence that may be distressing for some listeners, especially Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, and this is The Full Story. Researchers at Newcastle University have released the final findings of an eight-year project mapping frontier massacres, revealing for the first time a national picture of this violence. This project, alongside Guardian Australia reporting, shows that these massacres were widespread, often carried out by police and government forces, and were mostly planned in a deliberate attempt to eradicate Aboriginal people and Aboriginal resistance to colonisation. Today, what a national picture of Australia's frontier massacres reveals. It's Wednesday, the 23rd of March. Okay, so Lorena, the University of Newcastle has released the final findings of their Colonial Frontier Massacre digital map project. Can you just tell me a little bit about the scope of what they've been doing over the years and how complete this picture is now that they they show in this map? So the project's been going for eight years. Um, Originally, they thought they could get it done in three years' time, but as they started looking, they realised the magnitude of this history. Lorena Allen is Guardian Australia's Indigenous Affairs Editor. And over time, as more details of the map have been published, more and more Australians have been getting in touch with the research team, giving them more information, pointing to different sites and even providing, you know, really crucial first-person accounts that come from their own family archives. The research has been done in stages and you can see on the map that the focus was originally on the southeastern seaboard and Tasmania. Then they expanded into Queensland, across into South Australia and then the last tranche of data came from mostly Northern Territory and West Australia. So in total now on the map are 415 massacre sites. That's of all frontier killings and 402 of those are sites where more than six Aboriginal people were killed. And what's the relationship between this research and the Guardian Australia project, The Killing Times? In 2019, Lyndall Ryan and I, who's led this team of researchers, wanted to find a way to amplify that research in the media, some way to kind of uh, tell these stories. So the Guardian's project, The Killing Times, we were given access to the research team's data and then we developed our own map that added extra functionality. So things like you can search by your postcode and we wanted to do that so that people would be able to understand what happened near them so that they could see that this wasn't some far off long ago stuff that happened way out on the frontier. This was happening in our neighbourhoods for over a century and so we've been partnering with the university ever since then. This final stage may be the final stage of the project, but it is by no means the end of the story. Mm. So you mentioned that this work is unfinished. It's not a complete picture, really, of the violence that happened on the frontier. How so? Can you explain that a little? 
Well, the first thing to say is that in order to do this kind of research, you need a criteria to measure by. And the agreed criteria in the very beginning was that they would only record sites where more than six people were killed. International genocide studies describe that as a fractal massacre. And it, it, it is significant in that it, it's the size of a, a mass killing that will cause untold damage to the group and, and threaten their ability to survive. So it actually excluded a lot of the frontier skirmishes where, you know, one or two people were shot. And the other crucial thing to note is, according to Professor Lynn Ryan, the map's just not definitive because so many of these massacres were hidden. There was a code of silence. People were told never to speak of their deeds. This is just the first attempt at a kind of national snapshot of what really happened on the, the frontier. And with the Guardian's Killing Times project, our, our approach has always been to try and tell the stories of descendants on all sides because it's so fundamental to an honest truth-telling about our nation's history. So we will continue to tell those stories uh, into the future. Mm. So, Lorena, the last time I spoke to you about all of this on the podcast was when the map and the Guardian's Killing Time map was last updated in about 2019. What are some of the big things that we have learned since then? A lot. Since then, an, an extra 113 massacre sites have been added to the map, mostly from Western Australia and the Northern Territory. Hmm. Uh, we found our analysis of, of the numbers uh, based on the data alone found that Aboriginal people died at 27 to 33 times more than colonizer deaths. I mean, uh, one of the key criticisms, I guess, of this sort of approach to telling history is that what about the colonizers? What about all those times when Aboriginal people killed colonizers? So the research team did look at all colonial massacres. The definition was six people, not six Aboriginal people. Mm. So when you look at that map, you see that there are 400 and 15 sites. 404 of those sites are places where Aboriginal people were killed by colonists. A very small number of colonists were killed by Aboriginal people. The team estimates between 399 to 440 colonisers. That's versus thousands of Aboriginal lives. We found, crucially, that about half of all massacres of Aboriginal people were carried out by police or other government forces. And the most common excuse for carrying out a mass killing was as a reprisal for the killing of one colonist or, in many cases, the killing of a sheep. Can you break that down, these reprisal killings? I mean, what do we know about them? Usually they happened in reprisal for the spearing or the killing of a settler. The written record will often start with that as the kind of trigger for the massacre. But the more you look into those events, the more you realise that quite often attacks on settlers were because they had, there was a lot of violence against women on the frontier. So a lot of the attacks on settlers came after they had taken Aboriginal women hostage or whether they had encroached on Aboriginal sites, you know, there was skirmishes over water and resources. So in revenge for those isolated incidents, uh, colonists would often, you know, led by police or soldiers or posses of civilians who were deputised as police, go out onto the frontier sometimes for weeks and months at a time and just indiscriminately kill Aboriginal people. The phrase that we keep seeing is to teach the blacks a lesson. These killings were very much designed to 
not only eradicate as many people as they could, but to strike terror into everybody else to not fight back, to not resist the colonial expansion. We we heard the versions of that phrase over and over. And since 2019, we've also learned a lot more detail about reprisal killings, in particular one that researchers now think is probably the biggest mass killing in West Australian and Northern Territory history. Mm, So across two states and or territories. Tell me about that. What do we know about this? So what happened was in 1886, big Johnny Durack, who was a prominent pastoralist in the Ord River region in the Kimberley, was uh, speared and killed. In reprisal, a group of police and 20 men from Durack's pastoral properties in the the region were sent out from Wyndham alongside native police to try and, quote, arrest the natives for murder, unquote. So three days into this posse, they found a group of Aboriginal people, about 100 people, men, women and children, and the police report said shot and killed the the ringleaders. But the researchers on the massacre map are now saying that that they think it's more like 220 Aboriginal people were killed. So the the death toll, they are now saying, is probably one of the worst mass killings in that era. You say that police and the government were involved in nearly half of these massacres across the country. I imagine in that environment, it would be very hard to speak out about this and to pursue any form of justice. In the in the cases where colonists and settlers were conducting massacres, they were doing it in the knowledge that there would be no repercussions. Time and time again in the record that evidence was hidden or denied, uh, police investigations into frontier killings by colonists were incomplete. In the cases where people were brought to court for their atrocities were, you know, regularly acquitted due to a lack of evidence. And we also had the, um, the situation where any Aboriginal witnesses to the killings were not considered reliable and weren't, were not able to give that evidence in court. Witnesses disappeared. There's the example in 1888 of a massacre in the Northern Territory where the editor of the Northern Territory Times wrote that, quote, the police should disregard any laws and simply admonish them and disperse them in the Queensland fashion, quote, unquote. This is what, you know, times when the media was calling for the police to go out and shoot people Mm. to teach them a lesson. So, Lorena, as we know, for a long time, the Coniston Massacre, carried out in the Northern Territory in 1928, has been considered the most recent recorded massacre. Have we learned anything more about how recent some of this violence and these massacres were? Yes, well, we've learned that it it has been very recent indeed. Um, The researchers uh, have found evidence of mass poisonings in the 1930s, the 1940s, the 1960s, and one that was attempted very recently in 1981. So only about 40 years ago we're talking here. Yeah, there was this mass poisoning in 1981 and it was reported at the time but still unsolved. Still nobody knows who did it. An Aboriginal man, an Aboriginal woman both died and 14 other people were admitted to hospital, six of them seriously ill, after they unwittingly shared a poison bottle of sherry that had been left in the grounds of the John Flynn Memorial Church in Alice Springs. So it made the national news at the time. Um, There was a team of eight police detectives dispatched to investigate what happened. They even offered a $20,000 reward, but they didn't find the culprit. No one was ever charged. And the coroner at the time, Dennis Barrett, later found that the two people had died, quote, 
murdered by person or persons unknown. So this is very recent history. And according to Robin Smith, who's the historian, the Northern Territory historian on the MAP project, just shows that the, the frontier didn't end and poisoning became the choice to make because the mass shootings had become too easy to trace. So people were much more underhanded, but still delivering the same message to our mob, which was, you know, fatal. You won't find these stories on the map because they don't meet the criteria for the map. But they need to be told. I think this is the point about truth-telling that's really fundamental, is that these things all form part of that that history. They're things that happened in our in our lifetimes. And they need to be understood and recognised and dealt with. We're not talking about a long, long time ago. We're talking about an ongoing violation of Aboriginal people's right to life. Next, how an Aboriginal reverend broke open the conspiracy of silence in Western Australia. So, Lorena, as part of the Killing Times, as you mentioned, you've spoken to many descendants who want to tell their story. Can you tell me a bit about Tabitha Saunders? So, our reporter Kieran O'Mahony spoke to Tabitha Saunders. She's a Bachelor and Bidjara woman based in Brisbane, and she's the great granddaughter of a man called Reverend James Noble. And he's a really significant figure because, as Tabitha says, he uncovered one of the biggest known mass killings of Aboriginal people in modern times, the Forest River Massacre in the Kimberley, uh, and as an Aboriginal reverend, brought the perpetrators to trial, triggered a royal commission into this spate of killings. Mm, Incredible. Can you tell me a bit about the story of Reverend James Noble and exactly what he did? He was born in Boulia in Western Queensland. He worked as a stockman as a young boy. He wanted to go to school, so he asked the pastoral owner to pastoral property owner to tend him to school and they did. By the 1920s he'd become an Anglican reverend at the Forest River Mission in the Kimberley. And um, Tabitha said she thinks he joined the church so he could provide protection and meaningful assistance to Aboriginal people. Mm. In 1926, when he was there, a young woman turned up at the Forest River Mission with a bullet wound in her leg, Laura Bain, and she was shaking and she had this terrifying story to tell of escaping a police shooting that had killed her mother and dozens of other people. And so because Reverend Noble was such a good tracker, he was sent to investigate whether other Aboriginal residents had been uh, shot by the West Australian police. Mm. So what did Noble do? Well, so he followed these horse tracks uh, and footprints to a place called Gottagottamere um, on the banks of the river, Ord River, and he found a mound of ashy sand on the riverbank that had bones in it, human bones. And 10 metres away was a deep hole covered with stones that looked like he'd been, as the Royal Commission later described it, a makeshift oven to destroy the evidence of uh, a a mass killing. So Noble, I can't imagine what an Aboriginal man must have thought and felt discovering this, but he went back to the superintendent of the mission, the Reverend Gribble, and the West Australian Inspector of Aborigines uh, and told them what he'd found. 
showed them what he'd found, and then the rest, of, the three of them went out, followed a series of tracks and footprints to other sites, uh, four other sites in the area where they found even more evidence of uh, incineration. Mm. From all the records and accounts that we do have in the current day, what do we know now about what happened at Forest River? So what we know is that a settler called Frederick Hay was speared and killed by an Aboriginal man called Lumbia, and Lumbia killed him because Hay had violated his wife. Uh, so in, in revenge for the killing of Hay, two police constables, Graham St Jack and Dennis Regan, led a posse of 13 other police and some civilians. They, had, they were loaded up with Winchesters, five to 600 rounds of ammunition. They went out onto the Forest River Mission region and, um, and conducted a series of reprisals. Mm. I mean, there's a, there's, the death toll around this is disputed. Some historians say around 20 people were killed. Others say up to 100. There was a series of investigations conducted at the time that said that between 14 and 16 Aboriginal people were killed and their remains were burned in makeshift ovens. Was anyone actually held to account for this massacre? Well, yes. So a police inspector went out and, and confirmed the discovery. The perpetrators were arrested and charged with murder, but they were later acquitted. There was a lack of evidence. And part of the reason for that was that three crucial Aboriginal trackers who led the police to those sites containing the improvised ovens uh, just vanished on the eve of the trial. Three crucial witnesses just disappeared. Uh, and, and another Aboriginal man, Tommy, uh, who was a servant on Frederick Hay's station uh, who could give evidence about Hay, also disappeared. There was a Royal Commission after this uh, and in its final report, the commissioner, he said, I, I must record my displeasure that the trackers were not produced before the commission um, and, quote, I cannot exonerate the police at Wyndham from responsibility for their absence or for the very slight effort that appears to have been made when their absence was discovered to secure their return and attendance. Mm. How crucial was Noble in uncovering what happened here and in pushing for an investigation and a trial? Well, it was Noble's uncovering of the evidence that really uh, spurred the ensuing police investigation and then the Royal Commission. But it was also his wife, Angelina, who spoke many Aboriginal languages and who translated first-hand accounts of, the, of what took place there and really kept the pressure up. She, she helped record for posterity the, the oral history evidence that, were, that historians now use to help tell the full picture of those killings. So the two of them, Reverend Noble and his wife, um, were very important in making sure that this was not lost to history. I mean, it's clear that the perpetrators wanted to destroy as much evidence of their crimes as possible. So the Reverend Noble and his wife Angelina were really, really important to making sure that history didn't forget what they did. The commissioner did say that the Reverend Noble was a man of great acumen and ability who had provided valuable evidence. And he also said that he was frustrated that the, quote, conspiracy of silence had compromised the investigation. And that's a pretty famous phrase, right? It's commonly now used for this cover-up that was perpetrated about this violence and these massacres. Mm. That's right. So the conspiracy of silence phrase comes from the findings of that royal commission. 
So, Lorena, you've been working on the Killing Times project for years now, and I imagine I've gotten to know some of the stories behind these 415 sites very intimately. I know that this project has changed my perspective on our history, on what happened during colonisation. What impact has it had on you? It's been horrendous, Laura. It's it's horrific. I, I can't find the words to describe what living with this understanding on this scale is like. And I know that my colleague Nick Evershed feels very much the same. Um, it's been helpful to be able to talk to the researchers because they feel the same too, that this is living with this, that just the, the impact, the cumulative knowledge of what happened is just, I can't put it into words. I really can't. It's deeply, deeply traumatising. I mean, they were unspeakable. The deeds that were done on the frontier were unspeakable. I can't even, I tried to describe to a friend what I meant. I can't say it out loud. I don't want to say those words out loud. And and I think part of the problem is in, in the reckoning about our history, we have to find the words to talk about it. The map is a start. And of course, from our perspective, right, we, I mean, we grew up knowing what happened to our people. Our, our elders told us this stuff. We knew. They'd point out to us the sites, that place over there. That's where it happened. We know what happened on our country to our people. So this history isn't for us so much as for non-Indigenous Australians. And even now people are saying, why weren't we told? Why didn't I know this? Well, now you know. Now you know. We've got to get past that. I wasn't told phase and get to the what are we going to do about it phase and what are we going to do about it needs to have justice attached to it. It's not good enough to just say, all right, we're listening now. We accept that this happened on the frontier. Isn't that terrible? There are real world impacts that are happening to our people to this very day that require a response that is rooted in justice. That was Lorena Allen, Guardian Australia's Indigenous Affairs Editor. If anything in this episode has affected you, in Australia, support is available at Beyond Blue on 1300 224636 and Lifeline on 131114. We've linked to those support services and more on the full story page as well. If you want to learn more about this topic, Lorena's recent opinion piece titled Australia's History of Massacres Should Be No Surprise But Many Have to Be Dragged to the Truth is such a must read. We've put a link to that on the full story page as well as a link to the entire Killing Time series where you can find Guardian Australia's interactive massacre map and all the stories since 2019. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Jake Morgan. Camilla Hannan did the mix and sound design. Our executive producers are Miles Martignoni, Gabrielle Jackson, and me, Laura Murphy-Oates. Okay, catch you tomorrow.